Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Full Chat, the weekly F1 news and discussion show that can't afford to change concept anytime soon, so I'm afraid you're stuck with us like this for the whole season. I'm Brad Philpott, and as always, I've done my best to filter through this week's busy news cycle to find the best F1 content, and we want you to add your views and join in the discussion in our live YouTube chat. We run a Twitter space during our recording, but we completely ignore the listeners on there. So if you're one of them, search Full Chat F1 on YouTube and get involved in the chatting. Remember, any super chat questions get a guaranteed answer from the panel. But even if you're a cheapskate and don't pay us money, we'll probably answer you anyway. Tonight, we assess just how inevitable a year of Red Bull and Verstappen domination is and try to offer some hope for the season ahead. We give our opinions about the dilemma facing the Mercedes team and discuss the best way forward. In history with Alex and Brad, we remember some of the other times when a team has looked set to annihilate the field after round one and assess just how common a situation like this is. And as always, we answer your questions in real time as you send them in. Joining me, as always, a lifelong Fernando Alonso fan who was thrilled to see his favourite driver make the podium in Bahrain, my co-host and best mate, Alex Fangine. How's it going, Alex? It's nice to have a reprieve from the fat joke, because according to a review that we had this week, I'm not that fat, which I appreciate, but you're wrong. Um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop some bombs on how I really feel about Fernando this week. Right, so the only reason there wasn't an Alex Van Gene fat-related joke on the intro is I just ran out. I've just used so many. I mean, if anyone wants to send me in some offensive <laughs> things to say about Alex that's, at the start of the Let, show. Let's just have a call-in of people to recommend fat jokes for me. Exactly. Not to give me a complex that I really need to start eating healthier. I'm going to have a heart attack at 40. And, and just so everyone knows, in, in case you're a new listener to Full Chat, Alex isn't an Alonso fan, but I think we're probably going to give him some props tonight for his performance. So I'm I predicting... I compliment his driving, and that is about it. Also joining us tonight is a slimy, gloating, fun-hating sport ruiner who's <laughs> over the moon that Super Max is going to super win all of the super fucking races. It's good friend of the show and president of the Christian Horner fan club, Danny Henney. Great to have you back, Danny. <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Really appreciate that intro. 
I was so, coming on to uh, to be quite gentle tonight, but I shall just reach over and grab my salt now, if that's how it's going to be. I'll, this uh, is clearly <laughs> this is clearly all your fault. So thanks for ruining our year, Danny. Um, before we get going, a quick reminder: if you're joining us on the Twitter space, you won't hear the music or the bumpers. So if you want to get involved in the chat, see what we look like, and have no weird gaps where there's no sound between the topics, head to YouTube. The links on my Twitter profile, or search for Full Chat F1. So, what have you been up to this week, Alex? Apart from laughing. Apart from dying. I've just had a massive coughing fit because that intro for Danny, because it's the best thing I've ever heard. And a perfect way to describe Danny. I'm going to change him to slimy Danny in my phone. It's brilliant. Um, what have I done this week? I built a Lego Formula One car. Yes, you won that at my Christmas party, didn't I did. you? I won that at your Christmas party. And when I started building it, I thought I'd lost a piece which probably turns out I'd fitted that piece somewhere else because just I just a, like the, the real Ferrari engine <laughs> department like Ferrari, <laughs> and I fitted a slightly smaller piece in its place and I mean I had loads of bits left over a bit like the Ferrari engine people so I built the Charles Leclerc's Ferrari Ferrari F1 car this week Stephen Finley in the chat says Alex isn't fat he just has massive side pods so uh, and that is the correct massive concept big band. Yeah, okay. Um, we also apologise for F1 data analysis from Twitter not being on this week. We were planning to have him on, and he will be on next week, um, but he had some other plans that couldn't be moved, and so we'll get all of his data insights next week. So I'll tell you what, let's jump in to this week's topics. So let's not beat around the bush. Um, topic number one is the Bahrain Grand Prix results. Um, we've got a pretty obvious favourite for the championship, haven't we? Is that, a, is that a good way of putting it? Red Bull are bloody miles ahead. So that's probably the number one story. When Max came cr across the line after lap one and was 1.4 seconds ahead, I just had that envisioned from the movie Armageddon where the guy gets blown up and um, he did, the guy just goes, bye, Max, as he flies off into space, which is exactly the way that I felt about um, about the start of that race. So while, while me and you were crying, the person who's also joined our chat was doing the opposite. So it, it was really for me when I was watching the gaps. I actually downloaded the F1 app and was looking at the live timings. I haven't always done that, but I thought... Oh, invest in it for this year, looking forward optimistically to the season ahead. Um, and I really, it was when I started seeing the gap go up to like one and a half seconds a lap. And then I was looking at the gap to the Mercedes actually, because that was, that was really where I was, that's where I cared. It was obvious that Leclerc was falling slightly behind, but I just wanted to see how bad the problem was. And at one point it was like 2.2 .2 seconds a lap. And I thought, nope, everyone is screwed. And and it turns out in the end, it wasn't even like Red Bull were pushing that hard. No, it was um, as a Red Bull fan, I must admit, I was a bit worried going into the weekend. It looked a lot closer Friday than probably expected and all the noise coming out of testing. Qualifying looked to be a little bit closer as well. But uh, yeah, I must admit, after them first three laps of the race, even I was a bit oh my God, this is quite a big advantage. You pulled something like a second a lap and then just backed off and just proceeded to cruise away uh so it's a good job we had alonso to give us a bit of bit of entertainment yeah so ferrari really were the ones that we were expecting to be able to at least take the fight 
to yeah. Red Bull, but even the Ferrari challenge, Charles Leclerc's reliability aside, um, which did turn out to be a, an electrical failure, the news has come out today. So what I'm glad I, like. glad, yeah, glad I diagnosed that correctly because um, they were saying it was a, an engine failure, but obviously the engine stopped working because the electrics weren't working. The engine um, turned off. It didn't. You normally hear a bang or a pop or yes. something mechanical make a noise, and it didn't. Yeah. It just turned off. It sounded like there was no ignition. It was like things are turning around, but there's no spark happening. Anyway, um, all that stuff aside, it was clear the pace wasn't there. And Leclerc was it was the anomaly of the Ferraris anyway in being at least you know able to challenge a bit or look a bit of a threat in qualifying. Sainz has kind of fallen back into his standard number two role. And I think that's probably where he's going to be for the full season. Which is a real shame because we had such high hopes for science last season. And we're like, okay, well, he doesn't quite get on with the car. Um, then he obviously won in Silverstone. So it's like, okay, maybe he'll be better this year. And then obviously, as you just said, had the good run in practice and qualifying and vanished in the race. And the team that really ended up, well, second in the Constructors' Championship, but without a poor start, probably closer to being on pace the second fastest car in the race was the Aston Martin I think maybe maybe Leclerc would have stayed ahead but I think also Alonso's early lap dramas where he fell behind a little bit maybe masked how fast they could have gone in the race yeah I think if Alonso had been in his rightful position and not got done by Lewis on the first lap I think that would have been a lot of a a closer race than we expected with um, with Charlie up front. I, I think he'd have probably caught him. Looking at the tyre degradation that the Ferrari had, it, it looked horrendous. And to be honest, it's quite disappointing that the car looks the same as it did last season. It looks like it's going to be a super qualifying car and then just proceed to go backwards in the race. They might win one or two races if they're lucky. But yeah, a bit of a poor job from Ferrari again. I think it might even be worse than last season because, well, it, it definitely is worse because Leclerc was on pole for the first race. And when Ferrari were good at the beginning of the season, they were genuinely good. You know, they were a real threat and they were winning on merit or being out front on merit, even if they had their problems. But this year, they don't look a threat at all. They look like, you know, when Perez is able to be ahead of them, that shows you that the Red Bull has a good margin on the softer higher deck tire where he just cruised up to the back of Leclerc passed him easily and pissed off it, 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 yeah it, I mean let's hope that it's a a a a freak result and it just it's not it's and not the car, a freak result. Shush, shut up and the car just works here but um the last time there was a gap this big after race one was 2016, um, and the time before then was 2010. And so we've, we've we've got a segment later on some particularly dominant seasons, um, but I can see this one being added to that list the next time we have a discussion like this. I think I, I can't remember being as pessimistic about the race for the win, and we can talk about the race for third place, which maybe is where what we should call first place from now on. Um, <laughs> I, I think I don't remember there being a time where the win has been such a foregone conclusion, but maybe that's because when it was Mercedes winning, I, I didn't care as much because I liked them winning. I'm sure that's what it is, actually. I think it definitely plays into it. If your driver is winning, then it's certainly not that much of a big deal what the pace deficit is behind. And I think that's only natural, irrelevant of who you support, really. 
But yeah, it's, I, I must admit, I'm quite surprised how down you two are. You've got it's one race in the season. There's a long season to go. Mercedes will come back and do better. It's, I'm um, I'm not that down in the sense. I mean, I'm 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 disappointed. I'm disappointed in Mercedes not giving a car that can fight with when we all kind of thought before testing that Mercedes would have figured it out because they had a good car or they'd got to a point where the car was raceable at the end of last year. They got rid of all the porpoising. So we thought, oh, great, they'll be there. And then obviously we all thought it was low engine modes in testing and things like that. And it just hasn't turned up. However, however, after the race in the interviews, do you see how happy and smiley Lewis was? I've never yeah. seen him so happy with a fifth place before. He just enjoyed racing. He actually harked back to, um, he said it reminds him of the days when he was racing in the midfield when he was at when he was at McLaren. And he just loved the battles that he had today, that uh, on Sunday, because he had great battles with a great competitor who races fairly in Fernando Alonso. Out of all of them, I must admit, it was Lewis, I thought was, like you said, the most positive out of everybody. I was quite surprised how down everybody else was. I mean, Toto Wolf was totally obliterated by his comments coming out. I think worrying for me was what that will do to the morale back at base. If you were a designer in that team, that's, that's not really the comments what you want to hear. George Russell as well, you know, he seemed a bit down. But yeah, I'm weird. I thought Lewis was quite positive and took the approach of let's get a red stand and come back stronger. So I think that is that bodes well because he's going to need to remain that kind of positive and be happy to be fighting in the midfield if he's got any hopes of you know winning eighth title or or maybe even ever winning a race again. If he's if he's down and he's not feeling it and he's you know he's in the same kind of mood as as me and Alex or certainly me, he's not going to hang around until that car's good enough. But I think seeing how positive he was afterwards means that. At least he's he's happy that he can happy that he can drive without being bounced around, which this time last year obviously wasn't the case. They obviously had a fundamental ride issue, and uh, maybe maybe it seems more simple, like a more simple problem. Just give us more grip, and then we'll be faster. Um, and obviously the Aston Martin demonstrating that the mechanical platform of the car is is sound. Um, not that Aston Martin were on Red Bull's pace. There's still obviously a big gap there, but it shows that there is there's not a fundamental issue with the the car's mechanics they just need to whack on some downforce and i say that as if it's easy but obviously it's definitely not it, it's interesting you talk about um lewis not winning another race i think i think danny told me this stat so he'll correct me is it after hitting 300 races no one's ever won a race again yeah is that correct yeah no one's won a race after hitting 300 races now don't get me wrong there's only a couple of drivers got to that stat but <laughs> Yeah, nobody's ever hit 300 races and won a race again. That will change this year because I firmly believe Alonso will win a race. So although I think Red Bull are super, super dominant and in a normal situation where nothing weird happens, they're going to walk basically all the races. They're over a Formula One season, especially one as long as this one. There are going to be weird things happen. There's going to be weird weather. There's going to be failures. There's going to be accidents, etc., etc. And Alonso is going to probably be the one in a position to pick up those pieces when that happens. So I reckon that stat will be gone this year. Probably along with some others. I don't I don't know exactly how many records Alonso is sitting on that will change, you know, oldest driver to do whatever. Um, it, but even though they've got much better, I don't think Red Bull are capable of putting a season together without at least one engine going pop or one mechanical failure 
before Max crashing into somebody. Low Stealth in the chat says Alonso will win if Aston Martin use a tactical stroll strike to take out Max. They, he nearly used a tactical stroll strike to take out Alonso. Um, they were so oh lucky God. on that first lap that they both carried on. I have heard rumours that um, that Aston Martin are trying to employ Flavio Briatore. Okay. So, if we, so, so, so it's Singapore. For if what? Stroll, what on so, earth? So, so if Singapore, if Stroll crashes, we know why. Hang on. Is this a joke? This is this is a, a complete joke. joke? This is a right. Joke. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just desperately trying to think what on earth could he do that would be useful for the team? Right. You're just making an elaborate joke about how Flavio Briatore is there. Someone's going to crash on purpose. Cool. I don't think they're going to need that this year. Renault that season needed something like that, that safety car to happen at exactly the right time. Aston Martin are going to do some stuff on merit this year. We will definitely predicted. cover that Singapore race in a history with Alex and Brad one week. 100%. Yes. Definitely. So um, Joe DeGraff, I think that's how you pronounce it, in the chat, says great wheel-to-wheel action. That is something positive. So we, I mentioned in the Twitter post, we're going to take some positives from today. The wheel-to-wheel action of particularly Alonso coming through the field, I have to give him massive props because, in fact, Hamilton as well, they battled cleanly. It's nice that we've now got a data point to see that Alonso isn't just going to... I mean, you mentioned it earlier. He drove fairly. He raced correctly they both gave each other the right amount of room they were able to race hard but not run each other off the track and not bang into each other it was great if we can see more of that through the season the respect is clearly there that's awesome it's proper old school racing as far as i'm concerned where you give your opponent space to exist and continue the fight um you know we almost saw alonso bin it as he tried to tighten up on Lewis through turn four, and then yep. he managed to hold. He managed to hold on to it, and then they fought through a couple more corners, and then the wily old fox um, pulled a really good move on Lewis into turn ten. Which is, I mean, we can talk about the dynamics of that move and and how that move uh, could be pulled off. You obviously have to have more superior grip, which Alonso definitely had, but also it's a very difficult corner because that corner is downhill off camber. You have to be turning and braking at the same time as the track drops away. And what that does is it increases the opportunity for lockups, which we've seen lots of, and then people running wide. In that situation, if Alonso was up the inside and had locked up, he'd have smashed straight into, into Lewis. But Lewis saw Alonso take that move and knew it was done. So gave enough room for Alonso to exist and to potentially have an error and not cause a problem, and then try to undercut him, but didn't quite have the traction. That, yeah, that, that move, that... though, was done back at turn four, when you watch Correct. it. He set it up at turn four and got him out of position, going through the, the next couple of corners to where Lewis was off to the left, and he knew he could make the cut back on him. And I think he said if he'd have gone to the, the inside, he'd have just gone around the outside and got the run on the exit. But that was brilliant. If you were around in 2008, 2009, when they really had some niggle, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I was like, here we go. This is going to be amazing. It's the first time in however long I can remember that these two have got a genuine car to have a proper battle. It was it was great. I loved it. And as Stephen Finley says in the chat, Alonso also knew that even if he hadn't managed to pull that move off into turn 10, Lewis defending that move, he'd have been easy meat up the following straight into the next corner. And that's the whole point of when it comes to racing, and it's a good thing that the three of us are on, all of us have done plenty of racing. Okay, not in Formula One cars, but racing is racing no matter what you're driving. Um, It's all about strategically placing your car through various corners to outfox 
the other driver. Moves don't always just happen in one corner at the at the drop of a hat. It's something you have to plan. So that move up the inside, that where he got it done in the end, where Alonso finally got through. I've seen a few people on Twitter say, "Oh, this is another example of Lewis just leaving the door open on the inside." But that that is definitely. I, I have criticised Lewis myself for certain things. I think he left the door open in the final lap at Abu Dhabi. I think a lot. I think um, Verstappen would have got past him anyway later in the lap. But I think it was the wrong place to try and um, try and leave room and cut back. However, this was not an example of that. This was. People don't make a move down that inside in Formula One normally, especially on like reasonably worn tires. Alonso just absolutely hooked it up. He he was he couldn't have done a better job. Um, and like Danny said, he set it up earlier in the lap, um, and and it was happening at some point anyway. You saw how far away he pulled from Hamilton after that. It was um, it wasn't worth fighting that. And Lewis is sensible enough to know that. But that's also such a valid point. Is and you you see this a lot in sim racing where people fight. When there isn't much point in fighting, you know, you've caught somebody three seconds a lap and they defend like they're fighting for a championship. It's like, oh, you hadn't seen me three laps ago and now I'm bearing down on you. It yeah. might be it might be sensible for you to not hold us both up. Maybe get behind me and follow me and you might go quicker. So we've we've covered this is basically as in-depth of a race review as as we're going to end up doing because we are not Ever. one of the shows that does a race review there's enough of those and they're generally out well before this show comes out on a tuesday night so this is our first ever episode after a formula one race has just happened and you've heard us talk about a couple of key things that we enjoyed and we're going to touch on a couple more later i've got some more in my list of other things that happened in the race that we enjoyed but really the next question that follows naturally from what we've just been talking about is what's next for mercedes So we've heard talk of concepts a lot. We've heard the word concept used over and over. Mercedes need to make a total change of concept. Um, you know, the car isn't working as it is. They've had a whole extra winter to look into it and it's still not good enough. So we need to change the concept. Alex, what's a concept? Um, the philosophy, the way the car is designed and the pattern that they have gone through to come up with the car that they currently have. You know, um, Aston Martin have got these water slide type side pods mercedes have gone for zero pods and it just doesn't look like they're working so and are you saying concept is is like just the side pods or no the whole philosophy of the car so yeah the way i understand it front I'll, to let, back. I'll let danny have his say as well it's basically the whole shape of everything and in yeah. these this generation of cars a big part of that is the stuff we can't see unfortunately the underfloor but it's not from everything I've heard, everything I've read, changing the concept doesn't just mean putting on some side pods that are a different mm. shape. That's not that's gonna, not really a sticking plaster that and, and Mercedes have said it themselves. The they've tried different pod concepts, side pod concepts, they've tried the kinds of shapes that other teams have got. And obviously they're not they're not trying them as part of a completely designed package for their car, but they've tried something similar and they can't see the gain. So it's not quite as simple as going, we'll just look at the Red Bull and we'll do that. They have to fundamentally basically change everything. Every little bit of the car is interacting with each other. And like you say, the concept is derived probably 18 months before the car hits the track. 
So they've set off down a path of how they're going to generate, in simple terms, downforce across the car. And it's just not worked. And as you say, it's not a... You couldn't, for example, go and put a front wing on or some side pods or a new rear wing and it, and it all of a sudden fixed the problem because it won't interact with the rest of the car the way that it's, you know, the rest of the car has been designed to work. So it is going to be painful. Um, I do think they can recover, but yeah. Wipe that smile a, off your face. It's been a, yeah, it's been a, it's been a shocker. I actually thought they would have done something different this season. I was very shocked to see the, the zero pods stay there when pretty much every other team principal has said, you know, we've looked at that concept and we, we don't believe it gives any benefit. So they've got to change sooner or later, and it, it sounds like they're going to try and do it sooner. So the reason people mention the side pods, I think, a lot in conjunction with the talk about the concept is because that is definitely the most obvious thing. That's the most obvious difference on the Mercedes to the other cars of this generation. But that will just follow from everything else that the car is made of. The shape of the front wing, the turning vanes at the front, the way that all interacts with the floor, and obviously the rear wing, etc. And so the way that they're upper body surfaces are shaped is obviously from scratch designed to interact with all the other things um, upstream and upstream and downstream that they've designed and so they're gonna have to really really take a look at it in more detail you know really put a bit more a bit more effort into making some of the the kinds of philosophies of the other cars or the other teams try and really make them work because it seems pretty clear that that direction certainly red bull have managed to make that work it seems pretty clear that that's where the greater headroom is um there's there's obviously a reason why mercedes have been so firm in their or certainly toto wolf in in his his analysis that this isn't going to be enough you know i saw a really good uh post somewhere i can't remember where it was but they were on about and this is probably be a bit controversial but has it come to Mercedes where their egos got in front of them a little bit, how everybody's trying to say that the Red Bull's clearly the, the fastest car, everybody's copying that. And this guy was saying about, you know, has their ego got in a way where they, they're kind of too proud to say, well, we want to go and copy the Red Bull to get performance. So they're sticking to the guns in the, the belief that obviously the zero pod concept will work. Unsure from my point of view, if there's any truth in that, but I thought it was a good question of reading and is the, you know, is there a potential um, bit of truth in it? I think it's more to do with the fact they've lost a lot of stuff to the likes of Red Bull and Ferrari and, and up and down the grid because that's what happens to the best teams. You're a, if you're a, you know, if there's a if there's a senior technical person and you're two steps down the line and you get offered a big promotion at Ferrari or Red Bull or any other teams down the grid. You're going to take it so if you're if you're a valuable member of that team. They lose that person's information. So I do think that they've stripped a lot. Aston Martin have taken a lot of people. Uh, I can't remember what the numbers were, but they have massively increased their staffing numbers, and that has directly related to increase in pace because um, no less than obviously Dan Fallows, who's obviously put together a really good concept for this car, but then all the other team around them that they've pinched from other places is what makes success. And maybe Mercedes, as far as staff is concerned, are running a bit lean. So I I think it's a couple of things uh, on Danny's point about um, it being ego getting in the way. I think it's more that you've got this sunk cost of having gone down a development route and 
you're already that's the that's the route you've committed to you've already spent a lot of time and money and effort on developing a car that works um, with that philosophy it's improved towards the end of last year it showed signs of promise it won i got one two at brazil it's obviously once the bouncing was sorted last year at least it was looking like maybe that was still the right way to go and to take this big step back and and try and completely change will set you back a long way so i think probably the main thing is just the the desire to make this one work because you're already so far down that road i don't uh, i don't think the staff thing is is all is a bad shout either although as toto wolf said aston martin and ferrari the talking about them having a better car than mercedes is kind of a sideshow because the real gap is to red bull those two teams also have a big gap to red bull so saying Dan Fallows and you know the other staff that have gone from other teams to to um, Aston Martin and, and helped them make a great car. The car is not that much better than the Mercedes. That I think if Mercedes stuck with this concept, they could probably outdevelop Aston Martin and end the season with a better car than Aston Martin. The problem is Aston Martin are still miles off of Red Bull in reality, and Toto and probably the wider Mercedes family, their aim is to be the fastest, not second fastest in front of the others. But it is the jump that Aston Martin have made this season. They've gone from the sixth fastest car to the third, possibly second fastest car in the space of one season break. That's really impressive. It all depends on how much they can develop. I mean, um, to take for uh, our guest who is going to be on today, he's produced some amazing data over the weekend. Uh, and one of those, and the, the phrase he kept using was, the Aston Martin is a downforce monster. That's the word he kept using, which means it's probably got the most downforce on the grid. However, my understanding is, because I have uh, I have a little contact all over the place now, I've got a contact inside Aston Martin who said their car You're well connected. Is, I am, I am. So sometimes I actually do know what I'm talking about. Um, he sent me a nice little picture today of, of the trophy, of Alonso's trophy. See um, if you can send a picture of the underfloor and we'll pass that on to our friends <laughs> what he Mercedes. Did say, what he did tell me is, is the car is a bit draggy. So that could be part of the reason. So if they can make the car a little bit slipperier and and uh, what do they say? Make it make the downforce more efficient. Um, we we could see that car moving forward. So it all depends on how they can develop. And obviously, the talking about development through this season, that's one thing that might hamper Red Bull. Probably by the time they wrap up the championship, they won't be able to develop the car anymore. But oh well, they've wrapped up the championship by that point. And Aston Martin's position at the end of last season means they actually, out of the teams at the front, they've got by far the most um, wind tunnel time to use, etc. And most development um, ability. So if they use it well, then there's no reason why Aston Martin shouldn't be able to maintain or maybe um, you know move forward with their performance. Whereas Mercedes have... A bit less, and Red Bull have even less, but they don't really care about sticking to that anyway. So, uh, and they're far enough in front that it doesn't matter. It's interesting what you say around the dragginess, because I noticed that when we were watching the race. If you watched when Alonso was behind Hamilton with the DRS, you didn't really close that much, I thought, when he was behind him. The minute it reversed and Hamilton was in Alonso's DRS, he was zooming right up to the back of that Aston Martin. So, yeah, you're right, their, their development path has got to definitely address that going forward else they're going to be caught and caught very quickly that's jacob 
Sorry, Alex, no, go, go for it. No, go for it. J- Jacob S. in the chat says, I think they got transfixed with their porpoising problem, turned their attention to solving that rather than making the car go fast and got tricked by Brazil Grand Prix last year. And I think that is a large part of it. They've yep. admitted it themselves. They lost a large part of the year trying to fix that problem. This year, that isn't a problem, but they are just now miles away. And I think also the fact that the gap seemed to be narrowing towards the end of last year may have also lulled them into a false sense of security yeah. into continuing down that path. We need to remember as well. Sorry, so, I was just going to say, we need to remember as well, even though they won in Brazil, it was more of a, a Red Bull mess up with the tyres, etc., that they couldn't get the car to work on the tyres rather than Mercedes all of a sudden finding this big performance where they've blew the field away. I mean, it was a great performance, don't get me wrong, and they fully deserved the win, but it, were, it wasn't like they'd done a big upgrade and then all of a sudden jumped to the front of the grid. There's... um. A really good interview, uh, one of the post-race interviews with Lewis, where he talks about the fact that he's raced lots of different types of cars that perform in different ways, and he has learned what a car needs and what a car doesn't need, and that he put a lot of input into the car throughout the season, which got followed, and that's when the car starts to improve. But then he wanted to put a lot, he put a lot of input into the car for this season, and while widely ignored him apparently um and the car doesn't handle the way he wants it to and they've basically admitted to him that they didn't take his points on board and that they probably should have so here we go then um let's say mercedes are going to struggle to close that gap and unlikely to do it this season but the race for second slash third place in the teams let's forget that you know red bull are the top two positions on the grid but the second place team battle is actually really good so are we against rules why don't we just bring in some rules just to slow down red bull what do we think about that obviously Um, danny's shaking his head no i'm also i'm also shaking my head i i I hate success ballast i still have nightmares about 2005 it still lights explain my... Explain to, to our new fans, explain to, to the new F1 fans, explain what happened in 2005, Danny. So from 2000, obviously, Michael Schumacher had began to, to dominate and take his championships. And at the end of 2004, because he'd won every season, the view was that it was too dominant, etc. And they rewrite the rules to stop him from dominating. And because Ferrari were mainly with Bridgestone, um, they changed it so the tyres had to last the whole race rather than a sprint race, what had been pretty much the the, uh, the preceding couple of years. But I think they should have gone about it a different way. But yeah, that, that certainly still stings me because it was like artificial clawing back, if you will. And I certainly didn't think it was fair at the time because it was done on purpose to claw back one team equally, whether it was Mercedes or Red Bull or Ferrari. I'm, I'm not personally a fan of artificial um slowing teams down if you will and, and as alex said success ballast is like yeah no no racer wants to hear that you're gonna have to carry an extra bit of weight if that was an idea what anybody come up with down the line either so what about low stealth's comment in the chat that they nerfed the mercedes um in 2021 so this i mean this has happened recently the rules changed specifically to favor the red bull concept so mercedes went from 2020 with a car and their philosophy uh, in that season absolutely the right one for that season's rules package for 2021 it, we went to a philosophy that favored higher rate cars and the mercedes was effectively you know brought down Muted. a peg and we had a we had obviously a very tight championship fight but 
if the rules had stayed static and hadn't been changed, you know, there was no other reason for that rules change other than to end a bit of Mercedes dominance. Um, and they obviously very nearly went to win anyway in 2021 and still won the Constructors' Championship. So they obviously had a good performance gap. I'd argue it, it was at no point quite as big as, as what we've seen from Red Bull this weekend. Why why aren't we against why are we against this because i i'm also on your side Danny. i don't think we should be specifically changing rules with a view to to as alex says neutering teams i'm old enough and ugly enough definitely ugly enough to to have Wasn't lived through say, formula but... one in lots of eras as we're going to discuss later on where there has just been a dominant team we've just had to accept it i mean my prime F1 years as a as a younger person were the Schumacher years. Mine I too. hated it. Hated every weekend knowing that Schumacher was always going to win every single race. But it kept happening and I kept watching because at some point it was going to end. And, and at addicted. some point... And you're addicted to the sport. At some point, the drivers that I wanted to do well were going to do well, whether it was a freak result or whether it was just the end of that period of domination. So why, why is it okay that it happened to um, Mercedes? Or isn't it? I don't think it is. As I say, I don't think any team that's dominating should be clawed back artificially. Um, so you're saying the 2021 Drivers' Championship was a fraud? No, Good def- on you, Danny. definitely not I'm saying. You I'm definitely not saying that. <laughs> Far from that. But um, I do think it was pretty harsh um, to make the rules and do the the change that obviously did impact Mercedes. And I think everybody would have to agree it was specifically to claw Mercedes back a little bit. But equally, the 2020 rules should have come in, uh, the 2022 rules, sorry, should have come in in 21. So mm. it was like a halfway house that we're trying to do, I think, hoping that the, the big rules reset was going to shuffle the grid up. And obviously it's looking like it has done currently. But also in the middle of last year, they tried to change a rule to slow Red Bull down and it did absolutely nothing because, and as I have from, I have from a really reliable source, Red Bull changed nothing. When that regulation changed, Ferrari had to change shitloads. Mercedes, I'm not Paul Resta. Um, Mercedes had to change a few things, and Red Bull pulled even further away. So sometimes making a rule change when you don't know what you're changing a rule for actually doesn't make sense either. Ben Williamson in the chat says rule change in a cost cap era also removes the ability to adapt double hit i think one of the problems that mercedes have with this particular problem and we will move on to another subject soon because i know you're all bored of this misery <laughs> except danny who's just drinking the tears of team lh um right. i think the Our problem ratings is will go up in the netherlands this week yes the problem for mercedes is that they cannot spend their way out of this unless they just either have a bunch of money to spare in their cost cap budget which i, I doubt they have um or they just break the cost cap budget like some other teams might have done um, and hope to not get too harsh a penalty because effectively as we've seen with the Red Bull situation if you get it right early on that performance advantage is baked in for that generation of cars and even if you get pegged back with a penalty you know, Red Bull will suffer some kind of development penalty <sighs> later this year they'll, they'll feel the effects of that if you're that far ahead anyway if you've already got the advantage then it doesn't matter that much um, you know it's the damage is already done. So Mercedes are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Anything more to say on the Mercedes situation panel? No. As as much as it is nice to see them struggling, and I'm going to go there because I'm still sore from the intro, but as much as it is to see them struggling, <laughs> uh, what I will say is after five years of it, then I'll start to, to have a bit of sympathy. But I do think they'll come back. I can't see an organisation like Mercedes 
yes, they've got it wrong last year. They've got it wrong this year, it looks like. But they'll be back. They're massive. They've got winners across the board. They've got top drivers, top personnel. I think you're only going to take the as much as it pains me to say this. I think you're only going to take pain this season. I think next season they'll be straight back towards the top and and win. LH, don't don't give challenging. don't give me hope, please. Don't I do. Give They're me too hope. big to fail. But the thing the thing it, it, you make a really valid point though when you talk about you know I'm not going to have sympathy because you've because you, you've had seven years of it and I and I understand that um, and you know there's a lot of very passionate fans out there who are really projectile throwing toys out of their prams because of Mercedes not doing well. Um, I think if you're a big Hamilton fan, like I am, like Brad is, um, you don't like seeing the driver who you feel got cheated out of his eighth title and now doesn't have that opportunity to refight, to retake his crown. It feels like something's been stolen from you and it's very easy to start throwing a fit and getting very upset about it but this is what happens in this sport you get and we will talk more about this later but you get eras of dominance where somebody just gets it right and no one can catch up and we might have to go through and i say, and by we i say hamilton fans mercedes fans george russell fans ferrari fans might just have to go through with this for a little bit until somebody comes up with a concept that can take it to the Red Bull. I think the lack of karmic justice is still hurts the Agreed. the Mercedes or Hamilton fans because there hasn't been a good bit really since the really bad bit at the end of 2021. It was building to a you know a good crescendo for for that fan base and and you know for all the wrongs that we've covered that happened that day we haven't had we haven't had a good thing happen since. since. Um, and even and the one time where it was about to happen or potentially about to happen, Verstappen <laughs> bloody hit Hamilton again at Brazil last year. So um, LH8144 uh, in the chat says, it's always like this. Grew up hating Schumacher dominance. Didn't care about a driver during the Mercedes era. And it was boring. This is the sport. And, and you know, I think we're probably in agreement. Um, we don't want it artificially changed. It's up to the other teams to sort their stuff out. But I also think we were very much sold the dream with the cost cap and the new regulations that it was going to bring everything closer. It succeeded in actually making the racing better because when cars do get near each other, they can race and they can follow. They succeeded on that. However... The cost cap isn't working at the moment. I, I think the cost cap is a long-term thing. So I, I still don't think even in the next year or two from now, we can really say whether the cost cap has, has worked. But one thing it has definitely done is, is prevent big teams like Mercedes, who have got it wrong, from spending their way out of trouble quickly. So you we, can argue that's a yeah. good thing or a bad thing. But I have a really small point. Uh, Luke Maxwell in the chat says, what percentage of Red Bull's dominance is down to Adrian Newey? Now, something I have to make a point of, and people keep praising adrian newey for the last few years of cars when adrian newey does not design the car anymore the concept is not adrian newey's um he has he gets heavily involved in the front suspension arms and he gets heavily involved in the setup of the cars on he race loves days. those suspension arms he <laughs> loves those suspension arms um but he does not design that full concept and philosophy of the car. Of course, he works in and around the teams, but it is not. There is no car that is one person's vision anymore. 
Um, he doesn't sit there on his easel because the, the whole famous thing of he doesn't use CAD for anything. He used to hand draw everything. I can you teach can't... him Photoshop. <laughs> you can't. Yeah, look at our little purple car on um, on our logo. That, Brad, Brad, Brad can make that. Just um, um, just on Adrian, who why you bring it up, I did see a, a funny thing someone shared the other day saying actually the cost cap break weren't for sandwiches. It was for Adrian Newey's stationery cupboard. I that think that... Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Credit for that goes to uh, Engine Mode 11 on Twitter. I'm pretty sure I saw him write that, and that was very funny indeed. I think we've probably had enough Mercedes misery for the moment. Let's move <laughs> on to other interesting things from the first round. So before we move on to history with Alex and Brad and Danny today, um, let's just touch upon a couple of things that we enjoyed from the first race. So Danny, what did you think about Logan Sargent's first lap? I actually was really impressed with Logan Sargent. I think I messaged Alex in the group and said, Logan Sargent's done more in one lap than Latifi did in his whole career. Um, I, I like that assessment. I think that's true. That first lap looked great. If you've not seen the replay, Google it or check yeah, it out on YouTube. He, um, I must admit, I was a bit unsure with him coming into the sport because he weren't one of the big headliners you usually see coming up. Um, watched him in the lower categories, and he looked a solid driver. Nothing, you know, nothing special. But I thought he did really well. I thought he did really, really solid. I was super impressed, and he was only a couple of seconds behind Albon, was it? About I... ten seconds at the flag, I think. Yeah, not too far at all. For and there were no safety cars. We had a, a virtual safety car, but nothing that closed the gaps up. Um, I lost a twenty-five pence bet. By the way, I put twenty-five p. Um, on there being a safety car. I thought that was quite a safe bet, but it turned out to be wrong. Bradley, I've told you this before in private. Do not start gambling. It's not for you. I'm, I, I'm not a gambler you. at all. I'm really not a gambler at all. I, I put a series of very small bets just to just to try, and all of them failed. I did our, put... I, our I put mates Kyle Alonso. and Richard... Our mates Kyle and Richard have uh, are regular betters and do not get sucked in. I will I will not have this show jeopardised because you get a gambling problem. Connor Edwards asked me to go to Las Vegas. You pay for the flights. I'm there. I'll get it all wrong there as well and, and lose I'd more a, money there. On a serious note, yeah, don't go down the biting road. I had a guy who works for me at work get me into the uh, the horses at Cheltenham. Totally off topic here, but I, <laughs> I quickly escalated into I was spending 20 to 30, 40, 50 quid a week on bets and and that's why Danny is broadcasting today from his mum's basement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was—I thought you were going to talk about your venture into Bitcoin, Danny. 
Yeah, I tried. No, that's, Bitcoin. that's a whole other show. Let's not uh, do that. My <laughs> Bitcoin quickly got out of it. Uh, I made a little bit of money, but yeah, I'd certainly, I'd, I'd, I'm just saying for everyone watching, betting is is not something you want to go into lightly. So Paul Handley has given us our first super chat of the day, um, but he hasn't asked a question. So we will I'll, just um, take your I'll, money, Paul. I'll wait for Paul to ask a question. I did see him comment earlier just the word bonjour, but I don't think that really is what the super chat was about. Um, so other interesting things from the first race. Um, McLaren have major problems. So we, we said last week on the show um, that McLaren were in a bad position. We put it a bit more strongly than that. On pace, they actually weren't right at the back, but the car couldn't do more than a handful of laps without needing an air top-up, which is a bit strange. Um, any news on McLaren? Any information on why why they were having so many problems? I think their like, philosophy, a bit like Mercedes, they've just got it wrong from the news they were coming out and testing, weren't it? They've, they've kind of come up with a way they want to go, and apparently as soon as they, they got the car launched up and um, started looking into it, they they weren't pleased from day one, which is never a good sign. So I think they're similar boat to Mercedes, really. They've got to make a decision on do they scrap the season and try and come back next year or uh, try and push on with a, the concept they've got currently and try and get a few results over the season, if you will. But you can clearly see the frustration on Lando Norris as well. I feel so sorry for that guy. He's such a driver. And I think if this carries on this season, I think he'll be looking for a way out to get to a different team. So I actually heard a bit more information about the McLaren pace um, situation. Although they weren't the slowest, they realised when the 15 mil... Um, was that is it? Was it 15 mil? 15 mil, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, it doesn't sound very much. 15 mil is really small. Anyway, they, they realised that... centimetres. Yeah, I, I don't know why I was always thinking of it as 15 centimetres. You know, it, mentally, one point, you know, one and a half centimetres doesn't feel like a lot. Obviously, for the sensitive flaws of a Formula One car, it's huge. And McLaren realised early on that for their particular concept, that actually was a worse thing than it was for some other cars. So they'd already done a bunch of work down one path, but late last year they had to kind of scrap that. And what they've ended up with at the start of this year is kind of a continuation of last year because they just haven't had time to ready more of a radical new concept. And I've heard from Baku onwards, they really do have a kind of B-spec coming. Mercedes were were um, supposed to be having a kind of two to three tenth upgrade coming around Imola, which now may be shelved, we're hearing. But McLaren are definitely pressing ahead with this major update for I Baku. Didn't, I didn't think Toto said they were shelving it. He just said it's not going to be enough. Um, I so they have a decision to make Mercedes, and I know we're back on Mercedes. They've got to decide. Do what a we surprise! Do we continue <laughs> pressing ahead with this upgrade to the current concept and spend the money on that? You know, getting it manufactured because it's obviously not made yet. Otherwise, it would already be on the car. Um, do we carry on with that, or do we just say pause on that or cancel it and allocate that money and all of the work that would be going into that th- two to three tenth upgrade? to go towards the big fundamental upgrade and just press on with the crap version of the car for the moment. If they're in the middle of making it, hasn't money been spent? Um, some money's been spent, yeah. But that's the problem they've already had is getting into this sunk cost fallacy where they go, well, we've already spent the money, so we might as well carry on. I, Sometimes you have to call it quits. I'd Quit really while you're behind. Get, I'd really love to get someone who properly understands the financials of the cost cap to come on this show and talk to us about it because I don't fully understand it. I don't, especially all the things that are outside of it and chicken wings and different other bits of catering that. Yeah, are Danny all, can talk are, to us about that. It's only a pickle sandwich. I don't know what you're getting. So <laughs> I'd, I'd love, I'd love a 450 grand pickle sandwich hidden behind a 
500 million well, pounds we are, five, five, 5 million pound we are friends um, with a chef from formula one um chef wainer on twitter so maybe he could come <laughs> and tell us just how many sandwiches four hundred thousand dollars or whatever it was can buy you um other things that happen in the first race Alpine, i'm gonna tweet him that alpine underperformed but actually in all the post-race analysis this is depressing all the post-race analyses show that they're actually pretty similar to mercedes on pace um after they you know if you discount the penalties that Ocon was picking up every lap and a half and Gasly's traffic and, and issues in qualifying, they actually were reasonably quick. They were the Alpine are going to crop up at the front of the midfield fighting the Mercedes as the season wears on. So interesting from Alpine. For me, for Alpine, two points really. I was super impressed with Gasly. I thought him coming from the back to the front, he did a really good drive to get that far up the field. Up to uh, ninth by the end, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he did really, really well. And Ocon, it just what a nightmare he had. It reminded me of when someone comes around your house and says, can I have a go in your sim rig? And you say, yeah, here you go. And they tried to get out the pit lane and end with like seven or eight penalties. It was just, he had such a <laughs> calamity. He had every penalty going, didn't he? And I felt, I felt quite sorry for Ocon, but he just was watching it going, just park the car. Honestly, park the car and get out, son. You've had a really bad day at the office. And, and that's what they did in the end. They did park the car and get out. So just to recap for those who didn't see it, and, and apologies, the cat can correct me if I'm wrong, but Ocon got an initial five-second penalty for being yeah. out of position on the grid. So he let the car roll too far forward, and, and that was a penalty. He then picked up another penalty for not serving the first penalty correctly. And that wasn't his fault. The team started trying to change his nose Wait. before the end. Apparently point not, point, four of a point second four early. Seconds. Yeah, I mean... And, and so point four always... of a second, point four of a million, you know. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's four? <laughs> point, point four of a million between friends. Um, Just make it up. And then he got another penalty for releasing the pit lane speed limiter too early as he left the pit. Um, so it was just <laughs> Which kind was of a point real... one of a mile hour over. A catalogue of errors. Um, whereas Gasly had the opposite. He had a terrible qualifying, was dead last on the grid and came through to score points. Hang on. So... Sean Kidd in the comments just said it's 0. 0.04 seconds early. Oh, wow. I, okay. I don't know. I, I, I keep hearing four tenths, but if it's 0. 0.04, that's insane. And Well, that just goes to show that in every sporting rule, every rule in a sport like Formula One, it doesn't matter how much under or over the thing you are. If it's not right, it's a penalty. Mercedes had that problem with Hamilton's wing, which was actually costing him performance at Brazil last year, but it was slightly out of tolerance, however many fractions of a millimetre it was. So he was stuck <laughs> to the Daddy's back. Face. Red, Red, Bull, Red, Bull were, Red Bull were... What about, what about the Red engine? Bull were half a million over the cost cap. Um, and actually, it was a lot more than that, but obviously we're just talking about that bit because that's it kind of got changed to that when you ignore some of the other amount they were over. And they got you know, immediate, really minor slap on the wrist. So anyway, um, next up on my list, um, <coughs> Nick DeVries got a bit screwed by the strategy, but he was largely fine. He kind of was on par with Sonoda. I think Sonoda looked the quicker of the two over the weekend, but probably to be expected. Any DeVries comments? He was kind of anonymous for most of the race. No, that's fine. We, that's, we don't need to talk about Nick DeVries. We've actually only got seven minutes left of the I was, hour. I, I, was, I, was reading, I was reading Benjamin Rose's just um, about to say comment the same in thing. the chat, which said, I'm sorry I was late, but then I saw who the guest was. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say exactly the same thing. Apologies, so, yeah, Ben. Nick, so Nick DeVries. So, um, yeah, he got thumped by um, Sonoda, didn't he? 
But I think they, I think they hung him out to dry. I, I'm pretty sure if you were to look back at the race, they they pitted him at a very inopportune time or didn't right. pit him. I think when the VSC came out, the cars around him pitted, took advantage of it, had fresh tires, and he was le- left out there like a sitting duck. So um, let's not judge De Vries on that race. Mercedes pit stops uh, were sorry, better uh, than uh, all. Uh, sorry, on that, um, you can't judge any of the rookies on this one race. Except Sergeant, because we judged got- him as good. You got to, you've got to give all the rookies at least half a season before you can properly start judging them. I mean, Logan Sargent, I expected nothing from. Um, but then in the build-up, I've been hearing that um, people have regarded him as highly as they do Piastri. And they regard Piastri as like a future massive talent. So I think the thing is, the the results he's had in the seasons he's had in the junior formula don't reflect necessarily just how good he was in each of those years. Um, I think when you look at, you know, I, I can't remember the results, but it's like seventh in one season, fourth in another, whatever. And we tend to look, unless they got first or second, we tend to discount them. I'm certainly guilty of that. But from what other people have told me, he was much closer to the championship battle or in the championship battle and then it looks from the results maybe his team wasn't quite as good or maybe he had some kind of uh, dodgy results at certain um, inopportune times which bumped him down but in terms of how fast he was that wasn't really in question so it, it's it's actually interesting i think this is the first year where legitimately everyone in the sport deserves to be in the sport Yes. Okay. Right. You've reminded me of a thing. We haven't really spoken about Lance Stroll. So Lance Stroll is someone who you have famously said the phrase "get out of my sport" to in the in the past. That was that was my line. Um, I said it on an almost weekly basis on a different podcast. And the problem, as we discussed last week about Lance, um, he has had enough time now to be a competent F1 driver. However, I don't think any of that quite covers what he achieved this weekend. This hurts for me to say this because I'm not a fan. But the guy had two broken wrists and a broken toe. Now, I've had a broken toe before. That really hurts and I don't really want to stand up, let alone push my foot down on a I'm not saying which toe it was. It was the accelerator pedal. It was his right foot, thankfully. Still, that's a lot of movement throughout a race, not something you want to go through. But to have both of your wrists broken, go through keyhole surgery, being cast um, while this was all going on, to then get in the fastest racing cars in the world and not be absolutely obliterated by Fernando Alonso, who's had a whole three days of testing where he did most of the time in the car, is actually really, really annoyingly impressive. He has, in my mind, I've always had questions about his motivation, um, about is he, does he care enough? It doesn't ever really seem like he's cared enough about being a Formula One driver. He was doing it because he could and it was kind of on a plate for him, whatever. But that, that has really changed this weekend for me. When I've seen some of the videos that have come out this evening of his recovery process, which was a very, very short recovery process, where both of his arms are in casts and you see the x-rays of the screws, the massive screws in his wrists um, and and the broken bone in his toe, etc. I, for one, have had way smaller injuries than that and basically been out of action for weeks and not, not really wanted to 
hurt myself further. You know, I want to make sure it's definitely fine before I do any activity. You literally and, bitched for weeks when you bruised a rib. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Ribs. I mean, he hasn't gone through painful ribs. <laughs> but, but anyway, I was very impressed with more Martin. pain Motivation. pregnancy. It goes to show that he knew the car was competitive. I think that played a big part in it, but um, yeah, if I, it was languishing at the back, it had gone, do you know what? Um, let, 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 let Felipe have a, have, have a play and, and I'll come back in a couple of weeks and I'm feeling better. I still would question the... I, I don't think it's a bad thing for people to have genuine concerns about, but what if something else happened? Because although we've had it demonstrated to us that Stroll was clearly fit enough to drive the car, drive it for a whole race and you know, last a weekend with nothing going wrong, that was all fine. But there was still potential for an accident to aggravate his injury or in worst case scenario, an accident be so bad that he struggles to get out of the car. Because whatever we can say about the um, the extraction test that he did where we hear that he it took a couple of attempts before he got out of the car quick enough in the, in the extraction test, um, getting out of it under controlled conditions like that isn't quite the same as getting out of it upside down when it's on fire up against a barrier and maybe you need to be at full fitness for that ideally so i still question maybe some of the how of how sensible it would be to put who is a driver who's clearly still injured in the car but it was his decision he performed well enough it wasn't a wasted seat he scored great points it helped aston martin be second in the constructors championship and i don't think Drogovic probably would have done that same job even at full fitness. I think this is probably the first time I reckon we're probably going to get a chance to see how good Lance Stroll is. Because mm-hmm. he's had a few question marks around the car. He's probably been able to hide behind before. Now he's got a double world champion next to him. Okay, he had a four times world champion in Vettel, but Alonso's a total different kettle of fish you got to deal with. Driving <laughs> On at a probably mental at, level, let alone a physical level. Yeah, probably driving close to the peak of his powers as well, despite his age. I think this is going to be the first time you can genuinely judge Lance Stroll on what kind of calibre of driver is he. He's had flashes in the past where he's done quite well. You know, he's had a podium here and leading a couple of races, but I think we're going to really see this season. Does Lance Stroll have the the talent that clearly his father believes he has and himself to go up against Alonso? And, I, and I'm with you. I thought he did a, a bloody good job on Sunday. And uh, How... just going on to his pains, I, I sprained my ankle, as Alex well knows, the other week. <laughs> and I tell you what, I thought I was dying. I was screaming at my daughter to get the ambulance. <laughs> and that was painful just walking. So having to get into a Formula One car with broken wrists and fingers and toes and the guy was a trooper on Sunday. I'm with Alex. I don't usually give him a lot of credit, but I was seriously impressed. And this is going to sound really bad for you guys as Mercedes fans, but I think if he was fully fit, there would have been a chance he could have been further up the grid and passed right, the up, cars as well. Um, I'm just saying, the, that's how impressed I was with him. However, it all could have gone very, 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 very wrong by turn on the first four. Lap. Yeah. Because he... Um, got off. To, was he, where was he on the grid? Was he behind George or ahead of George? No, he was behind George, wasn't he? So George got a bad start um, and dropped behind uh, and dropped behind Lewis. Um, Stroll. This is dangerously close to a race review, Alex. It's dangerously close to a race review. Um, so coming up to turn four, Lance went to have a go at George. I'm assuming missed his breaking point, didn't break hard enough, whatever it was, and went diving through past George and with the nose of the car hit pretty hard 
Fernando's rear right tyre. It's very it, lucky the angle he I mean, hit and the piece of the he car hit that he it, hit. Because he hit it with the nose of the car, and obviously, as you can see, with the nose of a Formula One car is big and fat and wide, it wouldn't have pierced the tyre. It would have given a big thump to Fernando Alonso, and he had a full um, load of opposite lock that kept him on the track, but it didn't break Lance's front wing, and it didn't puncture Alonso's wheel, because if he'd hit him with the wing part, with the, with the carbon fibre wing elements of that car, he probably would have broken his front wing and given Fernando a puncture, because after that, Fernando was going, I think George hit me, um, and the team didn't tell him it was Lance. I, I would love to have known the point of when he found out that it was actually Lance that hit him. It was on the slowdown lap. Is that what they told him? Yeah, they finally told him on the slowdown lap. Oh, I missed lap. that. <laughs> the, um... he, he had some killer radio messages. I loved the one when he got past Carlos and just went, bye-bye. Just... <laughs> yeah, that was. I actually laughed out loud. The thing, but... that, the thing that it did potentially or almost really hurt was Lance's wrists because if you see the wheel snap around on him and, and just the amount of opposite lock he had to apply when he hit Alonso, um, he's quoted after the race as saying he had a tear in his eye because that probably was the most his wrists had been tested. Yeah. And he probably won't have even had, well, he definitely won't have even thought about applying that opposite lock. It will have happened subconsciously Instantly. very quickly. And then he will have gone, ow, because that, you know, it's such a quick, it, there's nothing he could do. He had to, he had to make that correction and he did it well, but that would have been an extreme movement on a screwed together wrist. There's actually a shot of him on the, uh, when they were listening to the anthems at the beginning of the race, where he goes to put his hands on his hips and then he pulls his hands, his wrists away and does this with, and shakes Ooh. his wrists out um, because just doing that hurt his wrist. So I have a respect for him um, and we will now see what he's made of this season. Right, so, can, we, can, we, can we stop talking about Stroll now? Because I don't yeah, like saying nice I, I things. I had a final couple of things on, on the interesting points from the race, but we're already over an hour, so I'll, I'll just say them, and we probably don't want to discuss them. Mercedes didn't do particularly bad pit stops. That's better than normal. They were kind of up there. With no, they the fucked pit up stops. George's pit stop. He got a 2.8, 2.5 second pit stop. So 2.5 is so, a good pit stop. So no, George, no not, not the moment. It's not. George, George had a slow stop. 100% okay. George had a well, slow stop. Well, I read the pit they stops did, were good. They did the strategy well. They called it. They went early when normally they go. No, let's just go up the tires and stay. Okay, okay, fine, fine. Well, that you can cross that one off then. And the last thing was Ferrari reliability is still bad. The thing that broke was the thing that they changed just before the race anyway. So George's stop was five seconds, says Lisa in the the chat. There we go. That sounds a lot more. A lot worse. I knew there was a five in it somewhere. My point is that the stops that didn't go wrong, like a normal <laughs> stop. Because, no, because Mercedes last year and the last few years, an ordinary stop that has nothing go wrong would have it's been one of the slowest stops slower. in the race. Yeah. So now, at least if they've cured that, you know, I don't mind if, if one of them had to be a bit slow. Yeah, if you um, have a look, they were on average three and a half seconds, weren't they? When you look back over the races last couple of seasons, they've always usually been around the three to 3.5 second mark. So... It is an area they definitely need to improve in. And it looks like they, they did look a lot better on Sunday. Well, at least they've put some effort into something. Let's move on to <laughs> history with Alex and Brad and Danny. And this week's topic is dominant seasons of the past, because for some of us, we have experienced this kind of season that it looks like we're about to have 
at other times in the past. So I touched upon the Ferrari domination that I lived through in the early 2000s, um, but there were other times too. And, and each of us on the panel tonight have had a little look and, and some, some of us quite a detailed look um, at some seasons past where cars have been so quick, the result has been pretty much a foregone conclusion before the start. So has anybody taken the McLaren 1988 season? p 44 Right, is that you, Alex? Go on, That's tell the MP44. So, um, a Gordon Murray car when they after they dropped the tag branded Porsche engine and went to the 1.5 litre turbo en- turbocharged engine um, that was in that McLaren Honda and absolutely blitzed everybody. They won 15 of the 16 races, which is 93 percent, which statistically numbers based makes that the most dominant car in f1 history and not only did they go and win um uh, 15 of the 16 races the the race they didn't win they retired from while leading um and the difference was the gaps to the rest of the field you think red bull one by a big gap at the weekend. So you what, think... what was the gap? Was it 30-something seconds? I know he, he was about... Um, Massive. was about 55 seconds ahead of um, Hamilton, but to second place, was it 35 seconds? The gaps were insane. I mean, um, 88 was Senna's first championship, and I'm, I can't remember. Is that is that is that First championship year... win. Yes, his first championship win. Is that also, I think that's also the year where they collided for the first time at Suzuka. Is that right, Danny? Uh, no, I think that was 89. Yeah, yeah, it was, was eighty nine. Sorry, because yeah, then ninety was when he drove him off on purpose and declared it before the race, pretty much. Fine, okay. So, um, and bear in mind, okay. So in that race that was a year later in a slightly less dominant car, the cars were stopped at the side of the road for ages. Once they figured everything out, Prost got out of the car, eventually got Senna's car going. Senna went into the pits, changed his front wing, still actually won the race from um, Jabwi. Yeah, I think you've pronounced that correctly. Jabwi, I think it was. I think it was um, Jabwi. Um, actually, overtook Jabwi and won the race, and then obviously got disqualified from it. And that was in a car less dominant than the year <laughs> than this particular car. So yeah, they literally destroyed everybody. And of course, Connor has Connor in the chat has corrected me. It was Nanini, not Jabwi, oh, okay. um, but another one of those drivers who managed to get a win at some point in his race. The- the chat have um, come in with a contribution. D Longman 90 says Jim Clark in 1965 scored the maximum possible points due to drop scores. Didn't even do the Monaco Grand Prix to go and win the Indy 500. So yeah, that's not one we researched because we're certainly more of kind of the modern era. We're counting late 80s as modern here. Well, yeah. I have, I've, I mean, we, we can do this now, we can do this later. I have the list of the top... There is no later. We're already 10 minutes Five. over time. So I have the list of the top 11 cars. So um, I'll go from I'll go from the bottom. And I say 11 because yeah. I, I had to add in the 2021 Red Bull. 2022 Red Bull. Um, so If you get to one that I know about, I'll try and chip in some info. So at 63%, which is 12 out of 19 wins, was the 2011 Red Bull. Okay, I've I've blocked that out of my mind because it was. It was... He, he this was 
the year after he won the title and he just yeah. pissed off. So uh, dominant the, um, season. Blown diffuser maximum downforce car, Cor- weren't it? Correct. Um, and then there was the 1995 Benetton. Now, I didn't think about this one. I never, yeah. I never actually considered any of the Benetton cars, but it won 64% of its races, 11 out of 17. That's interesting, because uh, I've always thought of that season as being very close between Hill and Schumacher, and obviously Hill should 94 have won. 94 was. Oh, did you say oh, 95? 95. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, 95, Hill was well up. Yeah, sorry. I, I conflated the two. Then 2013 Red Bull, which was 68%, 13 of the 19 races. So 2013 was the year where they changed the tyres midway through the season after all the blowouts at Silverstone. And then he went on to win every single race after the summer break. Um, Or that nine in a row, Danny? Yeah, Lewis Hamilton was uh, in contention for the title. It's when he won at Hungary, and then they yep. made the change to the tyres, and Vettel just <laughs> took off. Sorry again. And I, back then, I was actually cheering for Hamilton to win. I was like, end the Red Bull domination. And the next one is actually a joint, um, is actually a joint win between the 1984 McLaren MP44, which was run by Nicky Lauda, and the 1996 Williams, which was run by Damon Hill where they both won 75% of the races, 16, 12 of the 16 races. So then... I would I would argue that that 96 Williams, for a rookie <coughs> Villeneuve and for a uh, not-the-fastest-driver in the world, Damon Hill... Was probably to... a much better car than, than, than they made it seem. Yeah, for them to do that well, I think if you put Schumacher in there, in period, Gone. that car would be... Gone the most dominant car ever but anyway continue and, and, and 1984 has, has special hearts because that's when i was born so nikki Lauda was champion the year i was born in that in 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 my in driving for my favorite team so that means a lot to me um and then slotting in just after that is the 2022 um red bull that ended up winning 77 percent of the races 17 out of 22 that car won because it wasn't only Max Verstappen winning races. Perez did win two races. This is why this is so painful because we've already had a year of this, <laughs> a year of this crap. I, I, I mean, it's twenty-three races this year, so the likelihood of it matching the MP44 is slim, but I bet it's close. I, I, I'm, that, that, I'm going to keep a hold of this list for the whole year and let's see where the 2023 Red Bull slots in at the end of the season. What was the second race? What Perez won. I remember him winning Monaco. Singapore. I remember that. Uh, that was the one, yeah. Really good race from him in Singapore. He did yeah, really, he was really out, well. Outstanding. Um, then you've got the 2004 uh, Ferrari, won by Michael Schumacher, of course. This, 80, this is Danny's speciality, this one. 83%, 15 of the 18. We were talking about this one earlier. He had this title wrapped up by when, Danny? So he had this title wrapped up by Spa, and amazingly, he won 12 of the first 13 races of the season. And the only race he didn't win was Monaco and he was actually leading at the time and he was breaking in the tunnel and uh, Montoya was behind him. Under the safety car. Yeah, behind the safety car. I remember that one. And and it was that bad. Yano truly won the race. That was how crazy it was. Truly's only race win, wasn't it? Only race win. This... It has the record, right? So that is that the Is that the one with three people finished? ...wins at the start of the season? Uh... Yeah, this has got the most consecutive... Well, I think this has got the, the most wins out of the first 13. I don't know yeah. about consecutive so from the block. Maybe he won, he won, he won the that. first six. Um, Monaco was the seventh or... Connor Edwards five. is just saying that Trulli won from start to finish, Danny. So he says he says you're talking absolute rubbish. Yeah, because Trulli put it on pole, didn't he? I'm not. 
I'm not. He did put it on pole, Connor. Schumacher was definitely taken out of the lead in that race. He was in the lead, truly was leading, and they kept Schumacher out to get to the front of the queue, believing that he could pull away fast enough to make a pit stop. But you're right, truly was in the lead from the start, but Schumi got into front, and that was the plan, and he, he obviously didn't proceed to go and do it because he got took out by Montoya. Then we, move, next? then we move into the Mercedes era, and you have the 2014 car and the 2015 car, both won 16 out of 19 races, which is 84%, which is massive, which I'm not surprised about, though the, the, the launch of the hybrid era, that Mercedes was just phenomenal. And while we're talking about Bahrain, that 2014 battle at Bahrain, is still probably one of the best battles that Formula One has ever seen between two people in the same car going wheel to wheel. And that was absolutely phenomenal. Funnily enough, um, Nico Rosberg mentioned it I heard in, that. in the pre-race. And he goes, I should have won that because I was on the better tyre. And he fully gave gave Lewis props for that one. More worrying now, was, can you remember how fast the lap times were when they dropped the hammer and literally left the They field? dropped everybody. That's when we actually saw... because. Bahrain wasn't the first race of the season because uh, Australia was because Lewis didn't finish in Australia because yeah. he had the the engine spark plug go and there was a pit there was a safety car weren't they towards the end of the right, race and he had about fifteen laps to run and they just went and that was that was I think that they split their strategies and I don't think from then they really ever split their strategies again because Lewis was mightily pissed off about it and I don't blame him um, then we have the very first. I think it was the very first world championship, 1950, very first Formula One official oh, F1 count. championship. Go but the, I just like this because it's a cool stat. So they won six of the seven races, um, and it was uh, Farina, Giuseppe Farina, who won that who won that championship with 85%. But the interesting thing was, um, it wasn't technically an F1 car. It was an Alfa Romeo 158 from the 30s that they obviously stuck in a warehouse during the war. After the war had finished, they just put these cars out, started the F1 championship, and that one went off to go and win and go and win the races. Alex, because you're talking about and... boring old cars, Kevin O'Toole says, "Lads, I'm going home." You, you've <laughs> <seen> <laughs> get, um, get back to proper Formula. However, however, also Connor makes Connor Edwards makes a really good point. I was going to come to this. It um, actually won every single F1 race it did, but. In those days, the Indy 500 counted on the F1 calendar and they didn't win Indy. So, right, anyway. Um, back to another Michael Schumacher car, the 2002... What position are we at now? Like, which, how, uh, this, is which... the final, this is the final three. Right, the top three most dominant cars ever. So, the, I, will let, I will let Danny talk about this car. The 2002 Ferrari, 15 out of 17, 88%. Yes. This was an amazing car. So this has some crazy statistics behind it. So in the 2002 season, it was 15 races it competed in from Brazil to the end of the season. Took 14 wins, eight poles, 10 fastest laps. 15 wins. Yeah, the you're counting over the next season though to 2003 as well. Uh... So um, Schumacher won 10 races in it, five second places, never finished third. That was how dominant he was in that car. Won the championship with six races to spare as well. Won it at the end of France to become a five times world champion. Remember it like yesterday. Fantastic um, memory. No, not boo. That was great. <laughs> they were good times. Um, and Ferrari as well. And I can't remember if this was a stat what Red Bull got yesterday, last year or not. But Ferrari scored the same amount of points as the rest of the field all put together. 
Oh my god. They, that was how I, dominant the car was. Uh oh no, that's in the next one I've got. So right, go on. then the What's final the, the top two. Two thousand and sixteen Mercedes. Wait, yeah. so so we haven't had ninety three Williams. Did that not even make your list? Nope. Right, well, okay, before we get on to these ones then, let me tell you the only one I researched, which didn't even make the list. This shows you <laughs> this shows you how many dominant seasons there the have been. The nineteen ninety two one isn't on there either. So in nineteen ninety three, the Williams duo of Alan Prost and Damon Hill were one two on the grid in almost every race. The only competition they had at all, really, from anyone all season was occasionally Senna would pop up in his McLaren as uh, in the race as quite fast. And occasionally, towards the end of the season, Michael Schumacher and the Benetton would cause them some minor inconvenience. But generally, if you look at the average qualifying gap throughout the season, we thought Red Bull's six tenths or whatever to the Mercedes was quite a big gap last weekend. This car was regularly over two seconds or up to two seconds quicker than the next non-Williams in qualifying. That is depressing. Although by the end of the season, some of the other teams did actually close them down to a couple of tenths. But for most of the season, it was well over a second and well over one and a half seconds gap to the next quickest car. They won 10 out of the 15 races, I believe. But the only reason they didn't win the others were weird circumstances like rain or mechanical failures. So that's maybe the only hope we have for Red Bull not winning all the races um, this year. But I'm pretty sure that Williams was on pole for 15 of the 16 races and was super dominant. And that doesn't even make your list of nope. the most dominant cars ever. Nope. Um, so carry what, on. What should actually make the list and actually is the most dominant car ever was a car we covered a couple of weeks ago, which was the fan car, because the fan car has a 100% race win record. Okay, it did one race. But it still but that, has but that 100%. Team, over the season, though, that team didn't <laughs> no. didn't have a dominant season. Just definitely, that one car definitely that came not. in. Um, right, and then on, we go, we've, we've already talked about this. We go on to the overall winner, which was 15 of 16 races, the MP44. Um, and when you talk about beating other teams, they scored triple the amount of points that Ferrari scored. Wow. Just an insane piece of car. And the thing is, you, you had so many elements come together for that car. So the incredible Honda engine, they had a whole new gearbox that they were really worried about. They thought it'd be quite unreliable, but it actually ended up being a very um, effective gearbox. They also had two of the best drivers still to this day that the sport has ever seen in Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. And everything just went right for them that season. It was the right way. It had good balance. It drove well. It was reliable. You know, all those kind of things you need to pull out a season like that. Wait, that was the first. You did this. You did the first. Right. Okay. I was waiting for one more. Okay. That's fine. I was thinking, what on earth is more dominant than this? I missed that you got onto the top one. Okay. I was really excited to find out. Shall I record for for the podcast sake? Shall I record a and number one is and then you can cut it in. (laughs) No, you can. I don't mind um, being shown to have not been listening properly. Ivan in the Ivan in the chat asks which car has the most dominant. uh, Which is the most dominant based on average lap time advantage? We don't know. We need to do a bit more research for that. We only decided on this topic this afternoon <laughs> um, and Kevin O'Toole asked guys do you think dominant seasons are more boring than talking about them um, <laughs> um, I'm quite not sure how to take that oh, yeah, I'm not sure is that an insult well look Kevin Kevin's <laughs> still here and we've been going for nearly an hour and a half so guys thanks very much for your research on that and it really are, the point of that was just to just to let everyone know that 
we appreciate happen. dominant seasons happen and it just although we've only had one race and as danny said you know we you shouldn't write it off after one race we i think we totally pretty are. confident we confidently <laughs> can and we totally are yeah don't get um, me wrong i hope it is but uh, just to clarify that but i don't think you can do you can't write I, it off. i'm not looking it. forward to danny rubbing this in our face after oh, every single God. race let's weekend. just let's just avoid danny let's just like mute him on whatsapp i will rub it in your face i'll do that privately i definitely won't do it on the show i've to got too much respect for everybody watching but you remember how much you've given me over the last seven years none absolutely none. you liar um so what i want in the comments on youtube and in our five star reviews that you give us whether you want danny back on the show to gloat about how well red bull are doing to at least bring the mood of the show up <laughs> I think Danny having Danny's perspective is largely appreciated I by agree. the by the chat and by the listeners even the even the team LH of you out there that would much rather that Red Bull weren't dominant I think you appreciate Danny's perspective and he's always very nice about it. Um I've got some final things to talk about. So um let's go to a screen with only me on so you can just focus on me. For, we've had <laughs> enough of these other two. Um before we go tonight, because we are going to wrap up shortly, um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, as Alex alluded to, you can help us out by doing a couple of things. You can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And a couple of people have done that this week. And I'd just like to read you a couple of really nice reviews. So one from, I can't pronounce that name because it's all consonants. I'll try. From Apple Podcasts says, Five stars. These lads are brilliant, bringing a light-hearted, totally relatable and knowledgeable insight into the awesome world of F1. Their, their unfiltered, unapologetic opinions are refreshingly genius. Thank you, lads. Keep up the work. You make my week. So that's lovely. That's like the nicest thing anyone said. So thank you for that. And that wasn't one of us. That wasn't... Or maybe it was Alex, because that's why the name's I, weird, because he's just I'm, typed in a load of letters. I'm not articulate enough to write something... You're right that yeah. nice yeah um, right. and it, for, there were no for, spelling mistakes that one came in quite recently and that absolutely made my day when i read that that's a nice one we've also got um from mcquirty7 also via apple podcast five stars great f1 podcast i like both the hosts and really enjoy the show so far my only gripe is the blatant disinformation at the start of each show the fat one isn't even fat <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately considering i used to be 80 kilos and i'm more like 110 and i got a rather big gut i am fat well you're not fat yeah, a big you know I mean? band we've got a, you, we've you, got a you, filter you, on him <laughs> Um, so other things you can do for us you can like the YouTube stream you can subscribe to this channel the one you're watching it on YouTube right now if you are watching on YouTube you can also subscribe to the new full chat YouTube channel uh, we don't stream on there because there's like three subscribers at the moment but you can add a large percentage to our total subscriber numbers if you go and click subscribe so search for full chat on YouTube try and find that account um, we've also got um, Instagram and TikTok that Alex is taking care of so Search for Full Chat on TikTok and Alex will try and clip the most interesting bits of each show or the things he finds the funniest and put them up there. We had some good ones on there this week. And the last thing really is just to tell your friends because word of mouth is by far the best marketing tool that a podcast like this can have. So do us a favour, lie to your friends, tell them that we're good and handsome and we know loads of stuff and then follow us on our social channels. So you can follow Alex at Alex Van Jean on everything, Twitter, TikTok, anywhere um you can search for the show at full chat pretty much everywhere or at full chat f1 if you can't find us i'm at bradley philpot and danny a recent twitter convert is at danny henny f1 so 
I think for tonight, we'll leave it there. We're going to look forward to having our official technical man on next week when F1 Data Analysis joins us. But for tonight, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And remember to keep it full chat. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.